Father, we thank you for this privilege of gathering together as your people, and we ask that you would please give us faith this morning as we seek you in your word. Uh, You make great promises to us concerning your word, that your words are like food that we cannot live without, that your words are like sweet honey that we ought to crave, but Father, also that your words are are sharper than a double-edged sword, and that's for our good, Lord, that you sometimes must cut us to the heart. All of this to sanctify us as you prayed for us in your farewell address, Jesus, is what we now pray for as well, that you would sanctify us in your truth, and it is your word that is truth. Please give us meekness that we may receive your word, and give us the spirit of revelation that we might know you more deeply and know the power of your resurrection. In Christ's name, we ask these things, amen. Diverting from the Gospel of John for a couple weeks, and uh, if we were a church that followed the church calendar or the lectionary, this would be Ascension Sunday. And so uh, we're going to read the story of the Ascension that uh, Luke gives us at the end of his Gospel. Uh, Luke chapter 24, verses uh, 36 through 53. This comes right after the uh, Road to Emmaus story. So turn in your Bibles, if you would like, Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 53. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy, and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ must suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple blessing God. The grass withers and the flower falls 
Well, I was asked to preach this text at my church, First Presbyterian in Topeka, Kansas. That was the church I grew up in. Next week, I was asked to preach this there. Uh, as I was reading through the text in, in preparation and study, I just was amazed by how much uh, is in this passage, how much is in here. And, you know, I mean, it, for me, it was like a, a kid in a candy store or, or and, and being actually at a restaurant with a good buffet, right? Like, man, uh, I feel like I could preach for an hour on this. But I already did that once. <laughs> and uh, enough of you scoundrels have scolded me, so. I will be brief this morning. So, um, Luke is the only writer who gives a direct, uh, full descriptive account of the ascension of Christ. He does it at the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts. Um, but uh, a lot of writers in the New Testament allude indirectly to the ascension. Um, and since we've been in the Gospel of John, I just thought I'd mention how John uh, speaks about the ascension. And John chapter three is early when he's talking to Nicodemus. He says, no one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the son of man. Later on, uh, he says, uh, I will be with you a little longer. This is what he's saying to his disciples. And then he says, I'm, I'm going to him who sent me. Um, in uh, John chapter 14, he says, I go to prepare a place for you. And then uh, kind of famously uh, to Mary at the end after he's resurrected, he tells Mary, after Mary is grabbing onto him, he, he says, Jesus says, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. So uh, years ago, I remember had, having a sudden realization that um, I had greatly undervalued and underappreciated the ascension of Jesus Christ. That I, it was something that was sort of an afterthought uh, post-resurrection, it happened, but I hadn't given much thought to it, and I, I, I really hadn't considered or explored the implications of the ascension of Christ to my personal daily Christian life. I just remember being almost obsessed with thinking about the ascension for, for a few weeks, and I, I don't think I'm the only one who has kind of un, had this experience about the ascension. Even though it's in our creeds and it's in our confessions, um, and even though two angels end up appearing at the time of the ascension, which whenever two angels appear, uh, it's usually an important event that kind of deserves its own attention, right? Gethsemane, the temptation of Christ, uh, the resurrection of Christ, and we see two angels again at the ascension, and we see that in Acts, not here. But <clears throat> um, there was actually a, a professor at Midwestern Baptist Seminary in Kansas, in Kansas City. His name is Patrick Schreiner. And he wrote a book in, uh, recently entitled The Ascension of Christ, Recovering a Neglected Doctrine. Um, and, and one of the reasons he gives for the fact that oftentimes we kind of neglect this ascension of Christ, which is uh, important, uh, very important. Sometimes it gets caught up and, and it gets swept together and bound up with the resurrection language all in one. And I really think that that's for the most part why we sometimes miss uh, the ascension and focus on the ascension is uh, language about the resurrection. Often, if you, if you read Acts 2.33, it talks about the resurrection of Christ and the ascension of Christ all in kind of one, right? Um, but Patrick Shiner goes on to argue in his book that, that we need a deep, uh, robust understanding of the ascension, that it deserves attention 
the event deserves attention to itself and not just getting caught up with the rest of the work of Christ. Um, and so uh, this text here in Luke, I think, gives us these four uh, points. <clears throat> Number one, Christ was not resurrected as a ghostly figure, but was raised in bodily form. And this is um, a, a doctrine that's very important, you know, um, um, and this is what, what is known as the permanent humanity of Christ. That uh, in, in the incarnation, Jesus was clothed with our sinful human nature. But in his resurrection, he was clothed in a glorious human nature. One in which one day we hope to be raised in. As Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 15, he says in verse 49 of that chapter, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So the first thing we see is this uh, reality of Jesus appearing in bodily form. We'll explore that more. Uh, second point is this, the ascension is a testimony of the vindication of Christ. His appearance in bodily form after his resurrection and the subsequent ascension is a glorious boast over the powers of darkness and evil. He had bruised the head of the serpent, bound that strong man, and disarmed all powers of darkness. This was his triumphant procession. Paul describes this vindication of Christ in Colossians 2.15. He writes, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. And the third, when we talk about the ascension of Christ, we're also talking about Christ's exaltation. And this is what theologians and, and nerdy theologians, they call the session of Christ. What that means is that Jesus, after his work of making purification for sins, was seated at the right hand of the Father, where he is now ruling and reigning as the head of the church, and through union with his Holy Spirit, he is to us our continued prophet, priest, and king. As a prophet, he continues to speak to his people by his spirit and through the preaching of his word. As priest, he continues forever interceding, praying, forgiving, and cleansing us. And as king, he commissions us to be his witnesses to all nations. And the writer of Hebrews, speaking of Christ's priestly intercession, writes it like this, and then his subsequent seating in, in um, chapter one, verse three, after making purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And fourth, and I believe the most important uh, application from the ascension, is that when we speak about the ascension of Christ, we are also speaking about the mission of the church in this age and in this dispensation, which is the coming and empowering of the Holy Spirit in order to fulfill the creation mandate that was given in Genesis through the Great Commission, through the evangelizing of all nations. That that's probably the most important, if you don't hear anything else today, the most important applicatory note of this sermon is the mission of the church to evangelize all nations as we bow to the ascended king who, who commands us to do that. That is his parting commands. He reiterates that. It's important. And so in verses, uh, let's go to point one, the humanity of Christ. In verses 36 through 43, we see Jesus proving himself in bodily form. 
And look at the gentle and tender way in, in which he presents himself to his disciples here. Uh, here in verse 38, he is contending with their contention. The word in the Greek for their doubts um, is a word called dialogismos, okay? And in the English, we've been sloppy because we've translated multiple words into one word, doubt. Um, in this context, this kind of doubt that the disciples were um, experiencing was a type of questioning or scrutinizing type of doubt, a type of kind of malicious unbelief. We see this in the other texts of scripture um, in passages where Paul is listing sins and he describes evil thoughts. And that's the same word here. So this is not a kind of doubt that some of us would maybe feel a natural sympathy towards, right? This is unbelief in Jesus and his promises. But still, even with this doubt, Jesus is pleased to condescend to them and get on their level and say, look, check me out. I have my scars, I have my wounds. I am not a ghost. I am in human body, I'm here. I, I'm really raised from the dead. I, this, is, this is not a made up story, this is real. And there are many today, uh, many in our mainline uh, churches outright deny the resurrection of Christ. Um, and that's this kind of doubt. Now, oftentimes when it comes to doubts in the life of a believer, we can either too easily excuse ourselves or too harshly accuse ourselves concerning those doubts. There are serious doubts that we actively fight by, prayer and steadfastness, and the scripture has provision for that. There's a word uh, for doubt in the scriptures that, that explains that kind of doubt, a kind of, a kind of wrestling. As Martin Luther quoted, um, as he said about faith, he, he is how he, one of the ways he defined faith was faith is a wrestle with doubt, right? Faith is wrestling with doubt. And, and nobody doesn't work like that. Nobody has 100% assurance. Um, and so I remember one time being on the West Coast somewhere, I believe it was Seattle, and uh, this was actually a time in my life where I was experiencing a lot of doubt. Not the type of doubt I don't think that the disciples were expressing, just a struggle with my own assurance and feeling doubts and praying that the Lord would come and that he would give me assurance. And I remember seeing a, a, a sign, a billboard sign for a seminary. And uh, I don't remember the seminary, but I remember exactly what the billboard said. It said, have doubts about Christianity, question mark? Us too, come doubt with us. That's what it said. I remember, I, I just, it made me so angry because I didn't want to doubt. I hated my doubt. My doubt was painful. I wanted it to be gone. I wanted to have confidence. I wanted to know, I wanted to have assurance, right? And here this seminary was selling this idea that this kind of doubt was cool, man. You should come to this seminary and just doubt the doctrines of Christ with us. Um, but this was the type of doubt I think that disciples were experiencing, that Jesus was so still humble and condescended towards, right? That's amazing. And some of us, 
we, we, we experience um, both kinds of doubts. And sometimes we have uh, maybe ourselves or those who we know that we love and are, are kind of talking, well, I don't know if I believe this anymore. And it's not, look at Christ, he's not harsh with those types of doubts. But, but he doesn't want them to sit and stay in that kind of doubt, right? But, but sometimes we're too harsh and too critical upon ourselves when we have just real wrestles with doubt and uncertainty. Uh, and, and that's when we need to uh, uh, draw near to Christ and r- realize that, you know, as Martin Luther said, faith is a wrestle with doubt. Dead things don't wrestle. So wrestling with doubt, that is a lively faith. And you will do that till the day you die. Um, and the most faithful believers have. Jesus is the wonderful counselor. We see that in this passage. He's the one who can say, he's the God who can say, see, I'm not far away, I'm, I'm near. I've experienced your pains. I have the scars. And unlike many uh, want to be healers, he's not still hurt. Hurt people hurt people, but Jesus is showing, hey, I'm, I'm healed, but I know what it's like. So when we come to Jesus, we're not coming to someone who is still hurt. He's been ascended, but yet has the scars and he knows. So he has glory, right? But he knows the brokenness also, so he can sympathize. So this passage tells us about that, right? That he is as a priest still in his human form as the God-man that we can go to. Number two, the vindication of Christ is seen here in the second part of the passage. Jesus got and Jesus gave. In Psalm 68, it describes the ascension of Christ in this way. You ascended on high, leading a host of, of captives in your train. Train would be procession or when kings would come through the capital city and parade uh, their victory and, and receive shouts of praise. And uh, then it says this, and he received gifts among men. And we know that Paul, when he talks about this in Ephesians 4a, he directly quotes it. He says, he, Jesus received the spirit without measure so that he could give the spirit and pour his spirit out to his church, to his people. He got and he gave. Um, This is what John Stott says uh, about this. He says, as Moses received the law and gave it to Israel, so Christ received the spirit in full measure and gave the spirit to his people. Um, Point number three. Let's look at how Jesus is now seated at the right hand and what that means. Uh, This flows from the last four verses, 50 through 53. And there's a very clear allusion, in my opinion, uh, to the uh, Levitical priesthood uh, in this last section. In Leviticus chapter nine, we see the process of Aaron, who's just been consecrated into the priesthood, offering up the first burnt offering. And here is what Leviticus nine, chapters uh, 22 through 24 say. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people. 
And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. This is what Christ has done once and for all. That his soul was made an offering for sin and pleased the Father much more than a goat ever could. It was a full and final pleasing aroma that then when Christ, as he's beginning to ascend before he ascends, just as Aaron gave a blessing, a benediction to the people and Jesus did the same thing. He lifted up his hands and then he was parted into the Holy of Holies, just as Aaron and Moses would have gone into the Holy of Holies in the tent. And then it says that fire came down, which was testimony that the Lord had approved of that sacrifice. Pentecost is the proof, the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church is that promise that Jesus would be the one who baptizes with fire and baptizes with the Spirit of God. That's what he's done, which gives us assurance uh, that Christ is who he said he was, that his offer for you and I was complete and it satisfied the Father. Um, And so, Uh, I remember speaking to Young Life students years ago at camp and I was so excited to to teach them about what Hebrews 12 verse two says. It it describes Jesus and uh, how he willingly endured the cross and sort of like, um, I I like to think of it, uh, and and scripture makes this parallel, but um, a mother enduring pregnancy for the sake of holding the, and having the joy of, of holding the baby. And so I was excited to teach this, Hebrews 12, 2, that for the joy set before Christ, he endured the cross. And I was so excited to tell him, hey, ask him the question, what was the joy that was set before Christ? I can't wait to, oh, I don't know. Union with you. It's true. That's not untrue. A part of Jesus' joy that caused him to endure the cross was, yes, union with you. But I would argue primarily the truth is that the joy set before Jesus was reunion with the Father and being seated at the right hand of the Father and having full favor again restored with his Father and inheriting uh, his office as our priest, prophet, and king. And from his fellowship with the Father, and the pouring out of his Holy Spirit, we not only have union with Jesus, we have union because of Jesus with the triune God. Paul, or George talked about weeks ago being kind of double locked, that the Father and Jesus have us. I think we're triple locked. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Christians, we have fellowship with the triune God. And that's the session of Christ, that he's seated, that he is king, that he's our priest, and that he's still speaking through the Spirit of God. Um, But again, if nothing else is heard today, I believe that um, the main application of Pentecost or the ascension is um, 
the commandment to go reach all people. And we see that in verses 50 through 53, um, or not before that, in verse 47, uh, Jesus reminds them, as he has told them, that, hey, in his name, repentance for the forgiveness of sins unto all nations. That's Jesus' parting command to go forward, forward. Here they are, afraid, hiding. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to embolden you, and you are to go. The Spirit of God is that which enables us for mission. Of course, the Spirit of God does more than that. Um, but in this context, that's the focus of the pouring out of the Spirit, is the, for the church to go and to expand. And so, um, in Acts chapter 1, we see a more detailed account of the disciples' experience with the ascension, and also a more hard-hitting command about the necessity of the church's work of evangelism. And so I'm going to skip um, forward to um, verses 6 through 11 of Acts chapter 1. This is Luke. So when they had come together, they asked Jesus, this is after Jesus now appeared to them, um, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by him in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Uh, John Stott in his commentary on this talks about how there are two groups here that have been subtly or harshly rebuked in the, in the story of the um, Ascension. Those who thought of the ascension of Christ as a new opportunity for political power, and those who just wanted to theorize and gaze into heaven, kind of worried about the second coming, and theorize about when he's coming and, and uh, all that. One is a nationalistic hope of political power, and the other is a lazy obsession with matters that do not belong to us. When the disciples asked Jesus if this was now the time for Israel to be restored to power, they're dreaming of political power still. And here's what John Polhill, the commentator, says. The disciples were to be the true restored Israel, fulfilling its mission to be light for Gentiles and to the ends of the earth. This power to be given that Jesus is talking about was not the political power that they craved, but a self-denying martyristic, I don't even know if that's a word, but it should be, a martyristic evangelistic power. Not a militant power, a martyristic power. But on the other hand, you have the contemplative monkish separatist Christians, and the same rebuke that these angels gave is what is needed for us today. And that is that we must be busy as the church with the work of evangelism. This is what Paul says to the Corinthians on this matter, I think. It's 
very important. First uh, Corinthians uh, chapter one, four twenty. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. Um, I want us to imagine for a second that uh, one of the imperialistic kings from history would have actually succeeded in establishing rule over all the earth. Like maybe Alexander the Great wouldn't have died at the young ripe age of 32, right? Maybe he would have succeeded in going to all ends of the earth. And let's just imagine that he does that, he succeeds. All, All of it belongs to Alexander the Great, right? And after the final battle, he rides through the capital city, wherever that was. Uh, You history buffs know. You can critique me later. Um, After the final battle, he rides through the capital city in triumph with all the pillaged goods, weapons, armor, gold, all of it. And he gives and then commands them to go. Spread the glory of my name. Spread our culture to all nations. Right? They're defeated. They belong to us. Weeks later, these soldiers are found lounging around with their weapons goods, and they're kind of afraid to go out. Even though the enemies have have been destroyed, the enemies don't have much to fight with anymore. But maybe the the soldiers, they begin to, you know, talk about, man, I got this kind of armor. And and, man, you got this kind of weapon. And man, they're just kind of lounging around. They're not obeying the command of Alexander the Great to go. Like, I just imagine what the king, Quint King might say if he stumbled upon these soldiers. I think he'd say, what are you doing? My people are out there and, I, and they need you. So I think this is a sad depiction of sometimes what the church is like. I think we, get, we either crave nationalistic um, power, and, and that's what we think of, or we um, are obsessed with trivial matters and we love to get fresh insights and and read and study and that's all great but we think the kingdom of God is a matter of talking and conversation and discussion and that's a part of it right um I uh have this book here it's called Operation World has anybody ever heard of this yeah so I've not stuck to this but I uh, had a desire, at least, and I, I want to rekindle that desire and go forward with it, but to read um, each day, because what it does is it, it lists off every single nation in alphabetical order, and it gives you all this information, like, you know, where has Christianity been in this nation? What are the current ongoing political conflicts? What's the geography? What's the population? Uh, what's the history? Who's, who's, what political powers have... Um, dominance, you know, all that. Um, And then it takes you through, um, you know, Christianity's influence. And and it breaks down by denomination, okay? So it says, you know, for instance, this this country, Albania or whatever, and this country has this many million Catholics and this many, many uh, million Pentecostals and Baptists, Congregationalists. And I've read through so many countries, right? And I'm just going to be honest, I have not seen Presbyterian yet. I haven't seen it. South Korea, we have a, Presbyterians are all over. And I get this. I'm not saying the mission field is the responsibility of the Presbyterian church. No, it's ecumenical. Those are our brothers and sisters. But we must own our tribe, right? We must take responsibility for, for our own tribe. 
There are a few countries where, where uh, Presbyterians have, have gone. They've, they've been missional. I just want to remind us of our, of our heritage here. Um, John Calvin, in 1555, uh, he and his Geneva supporters had planted five churches in France. Four years later, they had planted 100 churches in France. By 1562, Calvin's Geneva, with the help of some of their sister cities, had planted more than 2,000 churches in France. Calvin was the leading church planter in Europe. He'd led the way in every part of the process. He trained, assessed, sent, counseled, corresponded with, and prayed for the missionaries and church planters he sent. Um, I just want to know, when are the Presbyterians going to join the fight again? You know? It's, it's who we are. Um, I hear a, a, a lot of talk, and I think it's not bad. I think we've had a lot of conflict recently. But there's this, uh, we talk about, you know, hey, wanting to live off the land. You know, that's what my, my friends and I joke about that. Like, I mean, I just want to go live off the land. There's nothing wrong with having land, right? Um, but we got to recognize that sometimes there's a desire in us that's not, it's not, it's not missional. I don't think it's the spirit of Christ. And I'm not saying if you want to live off the land that you're guilty of this. I'm not saying that. But I am saying we're not called to live cloistered, secluded, holy huddle lives. This right here is so precious that we get to gather together. One of the points, though, of us gathering is so that we can be scattered. And the more you scatter and the more we scatter together into the world, into the cities to spread the gospel, the actually the more precious this becomes. That's, that's why a team huddles up, right? Not to stay in the huddle the whole time, to go execute the plan, right? And that huddle becomes tighter and tighter and tighter as they do what the king or coach commands them to do, right? Um, this is what, this is how I'm gonna end, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer knew what it was like to really cherish this. Because he lived in a time under Nazi Germany rule, and he was a Lutheran pastor. He had to take his seminary underground because he was so outspoken against Hitler. As a matter of fact, he tried to kill Hitler. He was a part of the plots to kill him. Um, and he, he writes this in Life Together. And he's also quoting uh, Martin Luther at the end of this quote. Christians cannot simply take for granted the privilege of living among other Christians. Jesus Christ lived in the midst of his enemies. In the end, all his disciples abandoned him. On the cross, he was all alone, surrounded by criminals and the jeering crowds. He had come for the express purpose of bringing peace to the enemies of God. So Christians, too, belong not in the seclusion of a cloistered life, but in the midst of enemies. There they find their mission and their work. To rule is to be in the midst of your enemies. And whoever will not suffer this does not want to be a part of the rule of Christ. Such a person wants to be among, this is Martin Luther now, you can probably tell. Such a person wants to be among friends and sit among the roses and lilies. Not with the bad people, but the religious people. <laughs> I might not say it like this, but this is how Luther says it. So, oh, you blasphemers and betrayers of Christ. If Christ had done what you are doing, who would ever have been saved? The world is dying for genuine Christian witness. The last few years have been hard. 
Our king has not told us to retreat. The one command is to go forward to the ends of the earth. Um, this is what, uh, as we approach the, this is how, um, uh, I'll end with uh, what the Westminster says about the ascension. Um, uh, that after giving the gospel and commissioning us to preach the gospel to all nations, 40 days after his resurrection, he in our nature and as our head triumphed over enemies, visibly went up into the highest heavens, there to receive gifts for men, to raise up our affections there and to prepare a place for us where he is and shall continue till his second coming at the end of the world. As we approach the Lord's table, we remember that our Savior ascended into heaven, which guarantees us that his death in our place was sufficient. His death was a pleasing aroma to the Father and was once and for all that we might be forgiven. His soul was made an offering for sin. Let us pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we um, are thankful, and uh, God, you are king, enthroned, and Jesus, uh, God, we have been plagued by fear, there's been conflict, we're all tempted to retreat. God, you've given us a command, you've reiterated that command multiple times, and Father, you've poured out your spirit to us that we might go and that we might um, reach the nations, God. I pray that you would help our church do that, that you would help your church do that, Jesus, that you would give us, not a, you don't give us a spirit of fear, that you would give us that, that boldness, Lord, to continue. Father, it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.